Okay, Nehemiah 5. So last week, external threat to this project rebuilding the wall. It's uh, foreigners led by a guy named Sanballat that are trying to get the Jews to quit. He can't necessarily go directly at them because they have permission from the king to rebuild the wall. So he's trying to get them to quit through discouragement and intimidation, but it doesn't work. They keep building. And remember, just keep in mind, this isn't just about bricks around a city. The wall is important in terms of the, what it provides the city for protection. But it's also, this is a divine commission. God has called Nehemiah to rebuild this wall. There's a, it's a mandate from God. There's, it's, it's more than just an engineering project. It's a sign that God is restoring his people. It's very significant. So you can keep that in mind. That's one of the reasons that the opposition Dealing with that opposition is so important. Today we're going to look at internal threat. So last week was an external threat. These foreigners who are trying to discourage the Jews from building. This week an internal threat um, that puts the project at risk. We'll read all of chapter 5 and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous... In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying we had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we're the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we've had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we've bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you're charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we won't demand anything more from them. We'll do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe. And said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So now Nehemiah steps back. Verse 14 was written after the fact. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall, and all my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I've done for these people. So there's an economic crisis in Jerusalem, and it's threatening the unity of the people. 
And I think there's a good number of people who are probably on the verge of quitting. They're not going to keep working. So there's several factors at play, two long-standing factors. One, many of the Jews are their subsistence-level farmers. They're, they're poor. They're, we would say hand to mouth. So they rely every year on the crops of that year to feed their family. If they don't bring in a harvest, then they don't eat. Very little cushion. Second, there's a famine. We don't know how long the famine's been going on, but as we saw last year with COVID, when a crisis hits, it always hits the poor the hardest. The poor have very few resources to deal with the crisis, no cushion. And so if you have a famine, whatever these farmers had, they probably already depleted. And so that's their going in situation. And then you have this trigger when Nehemiah says, I need all of the men to stay in the city at night. We talked about that last week. It was a very good tactical decision. I need all of the men and their helpers to stay in the city at night. That maximizes building time. Nobody's having to commute back to their house at night. Remember, no cars, no street lights. So we're walking in in the morning and walking out at night. So if we, if we don't have to commute, it, we can use all of that daylight to build the wall. The wall gets built quicker. And at night is when the city is most vulnerable. And now I've got people in there who can protect it. So it's a really good tactical decision. And as we read chapter 5, nobody's griping about the decision. Nobody's fussing at Nehemiah about that decision, and they're not upset with him. They ever, I think everybody gets it. This is the right call. But it had an unintended consequence. The wall was built, was finished on October 2nd. We'll see that next week. It took 52 days to build. So that means the guys are working in August and September, which is the time of the fall harvest. So if the men are all staying in the city, then there's nobody to work the fields. There's nobody to bring in the harvest. We're, I, don't, I don't think any of us are farmers, but we all do know enough to know if you leave the fruit on the vine, it's going to rot. You've got to bring it in. You've got to bring it in. And so there's this time pressure that these guys are feeling. There's a famine, so they already don't have much in reserves. They've spent their whole life, again, kind of hand to mouth. And now they're, they're working, and I think they're working because they realize this is the right thing to do. Nehemiah is the governor, but he's also been sent by God. I think they all have a sense of divine purpose here. But in order for these poor farmers to help, it means sacrificing their harvest. And so at least three groups go to Nehemiah, and they say something's got to change. Or I think what's implied is we got to quit. I'm speaking as someone who's a husband and a father. If it's me, I'm probably walking away from the wall at this point. You've got three groups. One group that doesn't own property. So they're the poorest of the poor. They don't own anything. And so they, they make their living off of their labor. You go work for a day, you get paid at the end of the day. There's no indication that Nehemiah is paying people to rebuild the wall. So you've got guys basically what we would call day labor, and they've been working for several weeks without a paycheck. We can, we can flip over the page and say, oh, it's only going to be 52 days. They don't know how long it's going to be. And most people, many people, don't have 52 days worth of savings anyway. We saw that again last year with COVID. It didn't take long 
for many who lost their jobs to be in very, very difficult circumstances. So you've got guys who are relying on getting paid every day. They hadn't gotten paid for weeks. And their wives are saying, you got all these kids. We need some food. And so they go to Nehemiah and say, we need grain. Then you have a group that does own property, but they put their property up as a pledge on a loan. So again, think about, um, think about a farm. You bring in your crops a couple of times a year. So prior to that, a lot of, if you're poor, you're living on credit. You, ha- you don't have enough from the previous year, so you're living on credit. So guys who've taken out a loan with the future harvest basically as a pledge, their land as a pledge, and they're, they're in danger of losing it. They're in danger of losing their house or their land because they're saying, if we can't go out and harvest this crop, we don't have any way to pay our loan off. And then we're going to wind up losing what we put up as collateral. So there's that group. And then there's a third group who also are landowners, and they're having a hard time paying the king's taxes. And so they've done the same thing. They've pledged either their property, or in some cases, they've pledged their kids. And so that's, that was, there's this uh, an institution, it's called debt slavery. So if I owe Tate $1,000... I can, I've got four kids, and so I could say, pick one. And if I can't pay the $1,000, then you get Tom, my oldest son. You get him, and he's, I'm going to sell him into debt slavery to you, and he'll work for you until that $1,000 is paid off. And so there are people who are saying, that's, that's our situation. We can't pay, we, we had to take out a loan to pay taxes for the king. If we can't bring in this harvest, then our kids are going to go into debt slavery. And now, again, think about it as for, try to put yourself in the position of these guys. They're sacrificing to build this wall. I don't know how many of them are even going to move into the city. They're farmers. There are not too many farmers that choose to live in a walled city. So I'm thinking for most of these guys, they don't necessarily derive any direct benefit from what they're doing. They truly are sacrificing. And I think, again, I think they're doing it because they believe this is the right thing to do. I think they believe God sent Nehemiah and he's called us to do this work. And so I, I think they're doing it, and I think they're doing it willingly. I think Nehemiah made the right decision. This is an unintended consequence. This is what's happening. We have people who are not being able to feed their family, who are at risk of losing their property, or their children going into debt slavery. And as a, a parent, you can kind of put yourself in this position. If you had to choose between losing your land or selling your kid into debt slavery, most would choose to sell their kid. The reason being, once you sell your land, you don't have any hope of making money to get your kid out. You're not gonna, that's the only way you have to make money is to sell some portion of your crops. If you don't own the land, then you can't do that. Then you're never redeeming your kid. And so, again, put yourself in the position of some of these husbands and fathers. A very I mean, awful decision they're having to make. Do I choose between my kid or my house? My kid or my land, knowing if they choose to let their land go, they're probably right back in the same situation next year. But then they have nothing to put up for pledge except their children. Very difficult situation. And compound that with the fact that you're work, I'm working on the wall next to Tate. We're building side by side. I'm doing the same thing he's doing. And I'm thinking in my mind all the time about the, the food, the crop that I can't bring in. And if I can't, then he's, Tom's his for however many years. 
you can see there, I think there are guys who are going, we, we can't, as much as we appreciate the, the work here, we, we can't do it. And if Nehemiah's got to act decisively and quickly or he's about to lose control of the situation. The, the wall's not going to get rebuilt. And so he stands up and he's really angry. And he's angry at the creditors. And he says, what are y'all doing? Stop charging interest. And interest has two different connotations. One is what you think and what I think when we, take, when we think of interest. It's the, 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 the money that we pay for the privilege of borrowing somebody else's money. And so that's part of it. And, and what the creditors are probably thinking is we're actually being really generous. They're charging 12% a year. That's the hundredth part. That's 12% a year. The Persian standard was 20. That was the minimum. The minimum standard rate at this time was 20, and they're charging 12. So they're probably thinking, we're actually being really generous. If, they had to, if these guys had to borrow from anyone else, they'd be in a way worse situation than if they borrowed from us. But Nehemiah says, what are you doing? And then also that word interest, the different side of it, it's the pledge. It's the land, it's the house, it's the kid that you're putting up as security or collateral for your loan. That word means both of those things. Nehemiah says, that's what we're doing to our own people. And then he paints this picture and says, it's ridiculous. We as a community scrape together money to redeem our kids who've been sold into debt slavery to a Gentile. And then we turn around and sell them into debt slavery among ourselves. What we're doing with our left hand, we're undoing with our right. It's absurd. And so then Nehemiah, and he puts himself, he's one of the ones who's lending. I don't think that he charged interest and based on what he says about himself at the end of chapter 5. But he is, Nehemiah is wealthy. And he's lending money and he's lending grain. And he says to the other guys who are wealthy, to the lenders, he says, we've got to stop doing this. I think he's speaking as the governor at this point. Here's the things that are going to happen. We're going to stop charging interest. We're not going to do that anymore. We're going to give back any interest that we've collected. And we're not going to take people's houses or their fields or their kids as a pledge. And if you've done that, give them back. So he's basically canceling all interest on the loans. And it's hard to tell if he's actually canceling the loans or not. It, I think he's leaning in that direction, but he doesn't explicitly say it. When the people say we won't demand, when the creditors say we won't demand anything else, that to me makes it sound like they've forgiven the loans and they've just turned them into gifts. And it's also hard to tell moving forward is Nehemiah expect them to give gifts just versus giving loans with no interest and no security. It's, it's one of those two things. And I think that's why Nehemiah paints that picture of this is how I lived as the governor. I think what he's saying as, as someone who's well off, as someone who's rich, as someone who has the ability to lend money to others, here's how I acted. And I think he's holding himself up as an example to others who are well off, who are rich, who, have a, who are in a position to lend. And that's what that little summary statement is when he's kind of stepping back and saying for the 12 years of his first appointment as governor, he didn't take a salary, so governors were allowed to charge taxes, to, the, um, to levy taxes on the people that they were ruling in order to pay their salary. And he said, I didn't do that. And governors were allowed a certain amount of food. And he said, I didn't take it. And it's not just that I didn't take what I could have taken. I actually paid for my business expenses out of my own pocket. He fed at least 150 people a day 
those are the Jewish officials, plus any Persian officials that were traveling through. Like, think about that. That adds up quick. 150 plus people a day for 12 years. He's got money coming from somewhere, but he says, I'm not taking any from the people. I'm not going to be a burden. Previous governors were a burden on them. I'm not going to be a burden to them, which again, I think he's setting, he, that's an example I think he's trying to communicate to others who are wealthy. So what does that mean for us? We've had lots of difficult things to work through with Ezra and Nehemiah, it seems like, and this will be another one. Nobody likes to talk about money. But that's what this is, is about. Economics to me is pretty complicated, and I'm not an economist. There's probably some macro level applications, but again, that's not my world. And so if that's your world, if that's your wall, then you can make those. I won't try to do that. I'm trying to think about personally, how does this land on us? Nehemiah was in a position as a governor to make broad decisions that affected borrowing and lending in his entire community. Most of us are not in a position to do that. If you are, you need to ask the Lord what it looks like. But most of us are not in that position. So what does Nehemiah 5 say to us? One simple people over profits. You see that. And you know that. God's not against anybody making money. He's always against people exploiting people. And that's what was happening here. And I don't think giving everyone in the story the benefit of the doubt. I don't think that the lenders were being wicked. And I don't even think they were being greedy. Again, I think in their mind, they're like, instead of charging 20%, we're charging 12. We're providing this service to our brothers. We're helping them out. But from Nehemiah's perspective, which I think was God's perspective, they were taking advantage of the circumstances. They were enriching themselves at the expense of the poor. So we have these guys that are sacrificing to help rebuild the wall. And as they're doing that, they're running the risk of losing literally everything. And they're losing it to their fellow Jews, to their brothers and sisters. That's, explo- that's exploitative, even though I don't know that the motive behind it was wicked. I think oftentimes, and I'm putting us in this category, some of you may not fall into it, but many of you do. We're the rich. We're well off. Many, we lose touch with poverty. We lose touch with people who are actually poor. Like if I said to you, have you ever experienced poverty? For some of you, what you're thinking back to was your college or your grad school days where you ate red beans and rice. So just remember that was, that was college and grad school. That, that by definition means you're doing pretty well. And all of us most likely could have called somebody. If it really got bad, you had a parent, a grandparent, a sibling, a friend that you could have called. Most of us, we may have lived simply, but we weren't choosing between keeping the lights on and eating. That's not where most of us have, most of us have never experienced that. That's what poverty is. When we see people who come through our doors during the week who are desperate, for most of them, Their poverty, first of all, is relational. Yes, it's material, but it begins relationally. They don't have anybody to call. And some of that's because they burned the bridges. I'm not saying everybody's a victim. They burned the bridges down, and now they're in a spot where they, they don't have anything, and they don't have anybody who can help them. And for most of us, we've never been in a place like that. Even if we financially look, we look at the bank account, and there's not a whole lot there. There was a phone call that we, we could have made. 
there was a house that we could have gone to. Our parents weren't going to let us be homeless. And so it's easy for us as people who are comfortable, well-off, rich, use your word, it's easy for us to lose touch with in sight of people who are poor. And I think that might have been what happened here. I don't think Nehemiah, Nehemiah made the right decision, but as a rich man, he wasn't thinking about how is this going to land on the poor. He had been a cupbearer to the king in Persia. Now he's the governor in Jerusalem. He's probably never worked a field in his life. This probably didn't even cross his mind. If these guys are staying here in August and September, those are really big months for them on the farm. I still think he made the right decision. But I think there's that disconnect just because of his circumstance and background. And we can all fall into that. It's so easy for us to live isolated from true poverty. We can, it, what, and what that does is it causes us to harden our hearts. As, you read, as we read Nehemiah 5, we didn't read Nehemiah say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cancel the debts of all the people that worked really hard, that were super responsible with their money, that never wasted any of it. Those guys, we're going to cancel their debts. The lazy, they got to pay it off. The guys that wasted it on alcohol, they got to pay it off. He doesn't do that. He wipes them all out. And again, it's easy for us sometimes in our middle-class comfort to judge and to assume why someone's in the situation that they're in. And it's also easy for us when we make decisions to not think about how does this decision impact people who are farther down the ladder than I am. Oftentimes when we're making decisions, think about, I, again, this is a massive can of worms, but think about something like taxes, which I know is not whatever. But think about that. All that money doesn't go to the poor. <laughs> Most of it doesn't. But think about that. And even when we're thinking about taxes, do we ever think about how might this benefit someone who's less well-off than I am? Or do we just think about it in terms of how much of my paycheck am I losing? And again, that's imperfect because our government is. But even thinking that way, what about the clothes that you're wearing? Do you know, are your clothes produced in a sweatshop? If so... Like, don't buy those anymore. Spend a little bit more or spend the same and don't get that brand. But that's, that's exploiting the poor. In order for me to get a great pair of shoes for 30 bucks, some kid's making three cents an hour. That's exploiting the poor. And that's something that God always stands against. So there's that, people over profits. But I think even underneath that, it's Matthew 6, 24, we can't serve two masters, Jesus says. We're going to love one and hate the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. We can't serve God in money. And money has a capital M. Your Bible may say mammon. So again, this is hard things to think through, to wrestle with. What does it look like for us to serve money? Like if I asked you, do you love money? You would say no. If I said, are you devoted to it? You would say no. Those are emotional words. And most of us don't have some strong emotional attachment to money. What if you think about those as priority words, less than emotional words? And there's some questions up there that I would love all of us to ask. Again, this is super easy to start pointing at other people and saying, well, they do this and they do that. They got a nicer car than me. So it doesn't, I don't care. This is between you and the Lord. And this is a word from Jesus. And he's saying you can't. What Nehemiah says to his guys is, 
Don't you want to walk in the fear of the Lord? Isn't that how you want to live? The way you're handling this situation, creditors, you're not walking in the fear of the Lord. You're not living reverentially before him. And the same thing can be true of us in the way we treat money. So some things just to ask. And if you're afraid to ask the questions, then you love money. Like you, you're, you, then you're okay. We already know. You don't have to, if you're afraid to ask, then you're on the wrong side of that equation. You're serving money. But if you're willing to ask, ask this one, what about your giving? How much do you give percentage-wise? Dollar amount does not matter. God doesn't care. 2 Corinthians 8. He doesn't care about the dollar amount. He cares about the percentage. It's a, it's a reflection of our heart. That's why in the Old Testament you had tithing. I'm not a new... I, we're going to get lost. I don't believe in tithing for New Testament Christians. I think it's an Old Testament law. In the New Testament, God owns it all. Not 10% of it. And so we need to ask him and say, what do you want me to do with all of this? And he may say give 5% and he may say give 50%. But the first question is, what do you want me to do with it? And so think about your own giving. Do you give? And if not, it's very difficult. It's going to be very difficult for you to avoid serving money if you don't give. That's the most concrete thing you can do to break the power of money on your life is to, choose, is to give it away. That's the thing money doesn't want you to do. We talk about strongholds in our city. One is busyness, chews people up, eats them, chews uh, people up and spits them out. And one is money, and then another one is relational. But money is a stronghold in our city. We call it a giant. It's one of the things that impacts us personally. It impacts our homes. It impacts the way we interact with other people in our community. This is a significant spiritual issue where we live, and so giving is one of the ways that we combat that spiritual giant. So do you give? And if so, what does that look like? Do you give regularly? Do you only give when you have money left over at the end of the month? Do you give begrudgingly? Is it something that you do joyfully? And again, don't worry about the dollar amount. Second, what about your anxiety security meter? So some of us, we would say, well, I never think about money. It's because you've got a ton of it. And that's where your security is. That's no good. So read a little bit up in Matthew. Jesus says, if you're putting, if your treasures are all here, well, that's where moths and eat and rust destroys, and you're going to lose them. You need to put your treasures in heaven where they're going to be safe. And for some of us, we say, well, I don't think a lot about money. And again, it's because we have so much. And I would encourage you, is your secu- what's your security resting on? Or your anxiety? And sometimes that has nothing to do with your bank balance. There are people, some of the most anxious people I know, they're, they're fine. There's, they couldn't spend all the money they have if they wanted to. They're still anxious. Money has a hold of their heart. We want to walk in freedom, not in anxiety. And last, your decision making. Is your first question, can I afford it? And if you can, you do it. And if you can't, you don't. If that's your first question, then money may be your God. Because that's what you're asking first. Your first question, I think, should be, God, what do you want me to do with this? Is this something you want me to have? Is this something you want me to do? And then your second question can be, can I afford it? But don't invert those. It's all his. And so we want to ask him how he wants us to use it. And again, I don't, 
I don't know. I can't see inside your hearts. I don't know. I don't, again, I don't care how nice your house is. I don't care if you're a member at the country club. I don't care what kind of car you drive. This is, there's, all of that stuff is external, and I'm not worried about any of it. And so I don't want any of you feeling any level of sheepish. I'm not looking at your shoes to see if you bought them from a sweatshop place. I don't know who does that. All I want you to do is ask the question. That's it. Before the Lord. Show, search me. Know me. Show me. Where are the places where I am tempted to serve money instead of you? Second question. This is from 1 Timothy 6. Where is the love of money taking root in my heart? Timothy, or excuse me, Paul says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So it's not money is the root, but the love of money. And you can love money even if you don't have it. So God, show me. Is the love of money taking root in my heart? Paul actually says there are people who are wandering from the faith because of their love of money. It's a serious spiritual issue. And we want to ask. Again, there's, there's money, there's bills and coins. And those things are morally neutral. They're just tools. It's a means of exchange. But behind that is money with a capital M. That's a spiritual power that's under the authority of Satan who wants to steal from you and kill you and destroy you. And we don't want to serve someone who wants to steal from us and kill us and destroy us. And so we want to ask the Lord to show us. So let's pray. We've got a couple of minutes. It'll keep me from rambling. This is important. I don't think it has to be heavy. I think the counterpoint is a good father in heaven. So thinking about money can feel really negative. The other side of that coin, a good father in heaven who gives us our daily bread, who desires to give us the desires of our hearts, who says, if you give, I give back pressed down, shaken together, and running over in your lap. With the measure that we use, it will be measured back to us. So if you give a teaspoon worth, then what you're saying is, God, you can give me a teaspoon worth back. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. So the, the, the more our understanding of the goodness of God, of his care for us as a father, the easier it is to resist the lure and the temptation of money. So let's just start there. If you're willing, pray along with me. God, I pray that you would show me your goodness as my father. There's a verse in Ephesians 3. Holy Spirit, would you strengthen me in my insides to know how wide and high and long and deep is the love of the Father for me. Pray that prayer. I want to know. I want to know how secure I am as a son or a daughter of yours, Father. I want to know what it is to not worry because you take care of flowers and you take care of birds. So how much more will you take care of me? Holy Spirit, would you work that into our hearts? Second thing, Holy Spirit, would you search me and know me? Show me where right now I'm serving money, where it's got a grip 
on my heart. You can think through that grid of giving and anxiety and decision making if you want or show me. Say this, Jesus, I want to follow you and follow only you. For those guys in Nehemiah 5, they had a very clear choice. You can either make money or you can honor God. For most of us, the choice is never that clear. It's much murkier. And so we need the Holy Spirit to lead us. Show us, Holy Spirit, where are we at risk of loving money and hating you, of being devoted to money and despising you? And then last, Holy Spirit, show me, search my heart. Is the love of money taking root in my heart? I don't want it there. I want to love you with all of my heart. I don't want to love money with any of it. So show me. Holy Spirit, I pray that you administer to us. Thankful that you don't condemn. You do convict, but you never condemn. Thankful that in you, there's freedom, there's peace, there's joy, there's contentment. Father, we're thankful that you are a good, good Father that we can trust. So would you help us? We believe, but help us in our unbelief when it comes to issues of money. God, I do want to pray for any here who... Well, I'll stop. Amen. Here's what we're going to do. There's a... We do prayer, we're doing prayer walks every week uh, as we go through Nehemiah. So there's a QR code up there. You can snap that for your walk this week. You walk wherever you want. Um, that QR code will take you to our website. The prayer walk this week, we're talking, we're it's praying about that giant of mammon to be torn down in our city and replaced with simplicity, generosity, peace, joy. Uh, we do want to pray uh, for folks. Uh, some of you came in with needs, so we want to pray for you. And then for some of you, as I was sharing, the Lord convicted you and want to pray for you as well. So if when I'm talking about money, if you're getting defensive or you're kind of getting your stomach is getting a little churny, we want to pray for you about that. And we want to pray that the Lord would set you free and that you would have peace in your finances. For some of you, you're in a bad spot. You, you, you're, you're in debt. Your job doesn't pay enough uh, to cover your monthly bills. You're in a bad spot. And we want to pray for God to provide for you. And we want to do that and pray for him to move quickly in those circumstances. So please come forward. Don't be embarrassed about any of this. We would love to pray with you. And I know that the Lord would love to work in these areas in your life. So you guys can stand. We'll close with worship. Y'all come forward and either stand or kneel if you want prayer. And our staff will come around and pray for you. And Bo will dismiss us in a minute.